Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. You may be seated. Welcome everyone to Missio Day Wrigleyville. He is risen. Okay, excellent. Some of you know this ancient call and response of the church throughout so, so, so long. If you're new to church and that was weird, clapping is encouraged. But the actual call and response that we say to one another this morning is a reminder, a declaration of truth, a reaffirmation. So when I say, he is risen, you say, And now I want you to watch out because there's a couple times around here that we put our own spin on this call and response and you have to stay on your toes. Number one, because one of the times we practice is during my sermon, like interrupt me in my sermon. This is my way to make sure no one dozes off on Resurrection Sunday. But around here, we've also given this ancient call and response our own literal twist because at the end of service in the second part of worship, we have connected confetti cannons. Some of you who have been around, you know how this goes, and you've been asking me. I've literally gotten questions. Are the cannons coming back? (laughs) Yes, the cannons are back. But we use this call and response, not only during my sermon, to make sure we're all awake, but also in this moment where Emily will lead us at the second set of worship after communion, you will get your cannons, and you hold them up, Don't do it too soon. We use the call and response. And Emily will say the first part and you will say the second. Ready? One more practice round. When she says, he is risen. And indeed, you twist your cannon up, not at your neighbor, and get your video ready, you guys, because literally you will not see two people next to you. It is so much fun. But that's just our own twist on an ancient tradition that the church has been declaring this moment. We don't need to do a lot of deep digging today so much as proclamation of the most amazing good news ever, our risen Lord on Resurrection Sunday. But if I'm honest with you, when I was getting ready for this week, I felt a little bit like my timing was off. As a follower of Jesus, I was trying to just follow the moments of Holy Week, but it was like these moments that were heavy in the week when I was trying to get this anticipation, abundant feeling to prepare for a message, and I was like, having those feelings at odds. And I think that's just a truth of our walk, our life following Jesus here and now. There are times when this joy feels at odds with pain that still exists around us. So I'm just being honest. This week I had set aside the day Thursday to just really dive into the particularities for Sunday. Now that included some planning. It included some shopping. It included some texts on confirming that people had what they needed on all the teams. Thank you all for all the work to make Good Friday, Easter Egg Hunt Saturday, and this morning happen. So it was some of that stuff, but my part I was most looking forward to was my plan to spread out on our kitchen island with multiple Bibles and my pad and paper. Because I hand wrote my sermon this week. That never happens. I just couldn't even type it. My I was too like this going. And so I was really looking forward to make a pot of tea and everything. And that was Thursday. But in the morning, I start off first with a quiet time. I return right back to bed with sparkling water and a cup of coffee and I opened my Bible and I this is how I like to start my day but I knew what was coming ahead and I knew that my day was supposed to be ready for 
here, this message. And one of the things I do in my morning quiet time, I, some of you know I open two apps, the Associated Press for World News and then WGN for Local News, just to know what's going on in the world. And I'm getting ready. This is my day ahead. Can you like see the setups? I love good setups. I was so excited. And the first news in the Associated Press, the number one headline was about a church sexual abuse scandal that had been fully revealed in Maryland that was so devastating that I wanted to be sick. I'm so glad that the truth is coming out, but the length and the breadth of the hurt within a place that is supposed to be safe among the people of God makes me literally queasy. Third story down, there were missiles fired from Palestine into Jerusalem intentionally during the Passover week. And I sat there and I was really, really disturbed in my soul. And I literally talked to God about this. I was like, I am just not feeling it, God. This looks like Good Friday all over again. Corruption in the religious institution that is supposed to bring glory to your name. Political corruption mixed with uh, religious undertones to cause the most harm. Is this Good Friday all over? And I had the hardest time feeling like I was getting anywhere near resurrection glory. I felt like in that space where all of creation is groaning for the fullness of these promises to come. And I lost heart a little bit and was honest with God about it, went on with my shopping, did a little bit more. And then in the afternoon, I just needed to snap out of it. You know, sometimes you're just like, I just gotta, I gotta just, I gotta snap out of this. And so Andy and I went on a walk just around the block with our dog, Poppy. And as we just slowly walked around the block, I was just trying to soak in some goodness, a little bit of sun, a little bit of vitamin D or something that would break the spell. And it was the daffodils. Our neighborhood is bursting with daffodils right now. And I love daffodils. Let me geek out for just a second. The daffodils and the crocuses, those short little purple things, are the first ones to come breaking through. And they pop right up into the gray and dreary March. And daffodils scream how yellow they are. They literally like, I am so yellow, you can't even make me gloomy. That is how yellow and bright I am. They serve as a spring signpost that more is coming. And we walk the neighborhoods in our family. We call them signs of spring. And we send pictures to each other. We, they're like the signpost that more is coming. Next, there'll be the tulips in so many colors. Watch the magnolia trees. Their buds are like little anticipation moments. And they're about to go nuts. You guys can't wait. The the magnolias are like days away right now. And the, but the daffodils are the signposts. This is about to happen. Look at the bushes and trees. These tight little buds are screaming in anticipation and about to burst forth. But the other thing I love about daffodils, if we go back to that picture for a minute, do you see what's underneath them? They bust right out from the decay leaves from last fall that have just sat there like slowly decaying. And that's exactly the environment into which their bright boldness bursts through. Like I can bust right through this decay. So daffodils to me are signposts of new creation. New life, 
promise of spring after the gloomy months of waiting, but signposts to me this gloomy Thursday of the bigger new creation that is God's promise that we celebrate on this day. If you haven't noticed, I am a self-declared geek for gardens. I absolutely love them. I should get a t-shirt with like a bumper sticker that warns the people behind me. She stops suddenly and unexplicably for anything botanical. Watch out. I love just walking around. And it's because in my own life, I have had really significant moments, experiences with God, correction from God, revelations in my own heart and mind with the Holy Spirit, often when I am literally digging in the dirt with the sun on my back. I just love these moments. They've meant so much to me. I encounter God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in gardens. And I know, I know I'm not alone, and that's not a unique thing. We actually can look throughout biblical language, right? Throughout scripture, how often is this imagery evoked, garden imagery for things of God, right? Be rooted in love in Ephesians that we were just studying. Sowing seeds in the parables, uh, reaping harvests. You guys know all of these languages. Stay connected to the vine. Look, you are grafted in to this pruning work. All of these images are often around garden life, right? And we know the language of God's original design in the act of creation. That imagery is, of course, in a garden is where it all takes place. That's not surprising because the imagery being evoked is that of flourishing, abundance, harmony between God and creation, between God and people, and between the people themselves. They're designed for this, this harmony moment, walking together in the cool of the garden with God without anything disturbing that harmony. But the enemy of that flourishing and abundance broke in in that garden and caused a little fracture with one little lie. And that little fracture continues as we go through scripture and even through our history books. We see that that one little fracture moves on like shattering glass that spiders further and further out with more little tentacles as it goes with time and pressure. We see the influence of evil grow. But God one of our favorite little phrases in scripture, so often and so powerful, we see this poignant little phrase, but God continued time and time again with plans and promises and the provision to restore relationships that experienced fracture, to bring forth new life once again. Little daffodil signposts throughout the story of scripture and the history of God's people. Daffodil signposts of God's kingdom breaking right through in the decay and the decrepitness and the broken things. We see these little pictures as daffodil signposts through scripture. And we hear the prophet saying, there's more new creation to come. Wait for it. Feel the tight bud anticipation. A Messiah will come. New creation will come. And that brings us to today and the gratitude that we share and celebrate in the somewhat strange garden that we enter into in our story this morning. The garden of the tomb. 
It's a funny place to think that you might be finding new life. Like I promised last week, this is the time of year that I will promise my best not to get in the way and let the story tell itself. But this is the story. This is the moment. This Sunday morning in this garden of the tomb, you guys, this is why Christians throughout all of history since that day worship on Sunday mornings instead of continuing on with the the Jewish Saturday day of worship. It's because, wait, Look what happened on Sunday morning. Let's do this every single week as a mini celebration of this garden of the tomb moment. We honor this resurrection moment weekly. In fact, thinking about it this week, I was thinking of this encounter, just dwelling in this encounter in this garden, this moment in the garden of the tomb. And I was like, this kind of qualifies as the first church Sundays, Sunday morning church service ever in history. Because what we see is that in this garden of the tomb, uh, we see this moment of, of these people gathering together and we see it becoming worship, but it's not there yet. So I make a case, first Sunday service ever, but nobody knew that that's what they were headed into as they headed to the garden of the tomb that morning. The first to go, the gospels agree, were a group of women. They went to go with the intention to anoint and care for Jesus's body in the burial plot. Now, this is one of the known roles of women in this culture and this time. They had the great honor of being the first ones to take forth new life from a mother's womb and to care for that tender skin and clean it and uh, wrap that tender body in the clean linens. That was one of their joys, but with that joy came the honor that they also were customarily given to assign to those who had passed away to go and care for their bodies, anoint their bodies with oils and spices and to wrap them in linens as they're placed in these burial uh, caves that would be sealed with a tomb, uh, a stone. And then families would share those tombs over time. And I won't get into the details, but in this case, the women were going to do this work at this particular tomb because Jesus had died on a Friday before sundown which is the start of the Jewish Sabbath. And so from Friday sundown, they could not do this most important task of honor. So on Sabbath, they did as the law commanded and they rested and they waited. I'm sure they wept a lot. And then in the morning of Sunday morning, before the sun quite came up, they headed out with their tools to go back to this tomb to do the work that was part of their motion of honoring to Jesus of Nazareth. They knew where the tomb was because after Jesus was crucified, one of the Jewish leaders, Joseph of Arimathea, boldly went forward and requested the body of Jesus. And he took it to his own family's planned for but yet unused tomb. And he gave this use of the tomb to Jesus. You guys, slight pause, asterisks that we need to note. We cannot pretend Jewish leaders all equal not getting it, okay? This is Joseph of Arimathea is a wonderful reminder that some of the leaders, yes, were plotting against Jesus, but Joseph of Arimathea didn't agree. He did not agree with the decision on what the Sanhedrin were doing. He did not agree with the Pharisees. He was like, no. And what did he do? He spoke against that plot by taking the body of someone who'd just been humiliated and killed on a cross and putting it in his own family's grave as a motion of extreme honor. Anyway, the women had followed to see where Jesus's body was going, knowing that they would get to work on Sunday morning so they knew where to go, where he had been laid. 
And so now it's early Sunday morning. You can imagine the, the sober expressions, sort of weary and puffy eyes. Do you guys get puffy eyes after a full day of crying? I mean, like the, they must have had puffy eyes and weariness as they carried their things. The morning was still cold as they headed out to do their work, to do their task. I imagine their grief-weary, slow walk together, the women go, and when they arrive in the spot that they know, they see that the tomb has had its stone removed. I'm going to read, starting a little earlier than where Kelly started off, in John 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. Imagine the angst in that moment and the confusion and the horror. Someone's probably stolen him. Okay, that part was me. That wasn't scripture. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen laying there, but didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him, went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen laying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus's head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Fine. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the term tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. I think what they mean is he believed he was gone. They believed Mary's word like, he's missing. What happened? Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. So we read forward from that place. And at this moment, according to John's account, what we've got is Mary. She saw Jesus was missing. She runs back to get the others. They all check it out. Moment of chaos. And now we have Mary still standing there, just aghast. They've all left and she's still standing there like, what is going on? And she stood outside of the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and the two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, another at the foot. And they ask her, why are you crying? And she says, they've taken my Lord away and I don't know where they've put him. Now you guys, at this moment, we know that Mary's a hot mess. She doesn't even realize she's encountering angels. She is just weeping, like the kind of weeping that makes you not be able to see quite clearly. Like she is just weeping that this has happened. She's so upset. And she goes out. Um, she turned around. She saw Jesus, but she didn't realize it was him. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? And she thinks she's, he's the gardener because she's such, a, she's such a mess right now, right? She thinks he's the gardener. And her response is just to look and say, sir, if you carried him away, just tell me where you put him. I'll go get him. Now, I don't know Mary's plan. I don't imagine it would be very easy, but she is going to figure it out. I'll go get him. I won't even be mad at you. I just want to do this thing of honor that I've promised to do. She's so upset. This trial on the cross, you guys, Mary was there. She saw it. She saw the, the things that led up to it, the mock trials that showed this moment of the most disgusting union between religious and political corruption. These two did not cross over. These two religious and political uh, entities, the temple leaders and Romans, they didn't love each other. But in this moment, they conspire together for the religious institution goes to Rome to get the execution they want because they don't have the ability to do it on their own. So they're collaborating in a way that you're like, that's not right. That's not okay. 
Mary saw the mock trials. She saw all of this awfulness that was happening to him. She saw uh, and knew of the moments where Jesus' good friends that we talked about last week, there was betrayal, there was denial. She's witnessing all of this happening. And of course, she saw the physical abuse, the beatings, the spitting on, the mocking, the crown, the, the, this, the shame that was brought on. And she saw the awful moment of the cross, the worst death. It was not even allowed for a Roman citizen. It was the way for Rome to show visibly and in a really visceral way where you are literally without power. You are spread out often in nudity in front of the crowds getting the execution of a slave and later most likely your body will be put in a big old common plot and forgotten. And that was the, the brutal brutal and socially humiliating condemnation and powerlessness of the cross. She saw all of it happen and she's sitting there in the garden saying, and now this, they've taken him? Can you get any more dishonoring to my Lord? Where have you taken him? And he says, Mary. She knows that voice. Scripture doesn't give a detailed account of it, but we know that Jesus' voice called out to her and called out the demons that were torturing her soul and gave her new life when she started to follow him. She found new life and freedom in that voice before, who once before had spoken over her to give that new life and now speak just in a name, Mary. And immediately she knows exactly who this is. And they stood together in the cool of this garden of the empty tomb. And that's why I think this qualifies as the first church gathering. Because they celebrated a risen Lord. That's the truth that was spoken and was revealed in this moment, this Sunday morning. And I cannot prove this. I cannot prove this. I'm going to give you my hypothesis here. But I think that what follows is actually the most fabulous grace and peace filled embrace that church has ever experienced. I know that the Gospel of John records Jesus saying not to cling to Mary, but we actually know in several other accounts that Jesus welcomes touch. There's a moment where he says to his followers uh, in Luke, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet, which still bore the marks of his wounds. It is I myself, touch me and see. So he welcomed touch. And again, later to Thomas, he says this, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Why do I say this? I do believe that Jesus says don't cling, but I don't think he's saying don't touch. I think what is in the gap that we don't get to see in the written exchange is that Mary goes up and hugs Jesus with such a big filling up of a snuggle box, wiping her tears in that, you know that place on a shoulder that fits a face perfectly in any human hug that you have? It's like this spot. I think she puts her tears right in that spot and just weeps till she's caught her breath, until she can be right-minded, until her eyes are cleared, and then he says, you don't need to cling to me anymore. Now I'm taking some of this from other spots. This is my hypothesis, but I'm not making it up. I'm basing it on other things because I think he then goes and explains things that he explains in other places here in this first Sunday service, right directly to Mary. You don't need to cling to me. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. 
Mary, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. It's time now for you to go and teach others all the things that I've already taught you. Remember what I said, it is best that I go, that you don't cling to me. Because when I go, the advocate, the Holy Spirit will remind you of all truth that I've taught you. He will say the words that I have for you directly to you, and not just to you, Mary, but to everyone, to everyone who calls on my name, who accepts this gift that I have become the covering for the sins that you could not get back to God on your own. I have covered those and now you have access. So don't cling to me, Mary. Go, tell what you know to the others. And as the truth settles in and her weeping voice has settled down and she realizes there is some really crazy topsy-turvy truth that has just happened in her risen savior she goes now no longer with a puffy face or a weary face but with a radiant face an expectant face that something new is indeed happening and she runs back to the place where the other ones have gathered and she comes out and is the first to declare to all of them he is risen you guys are going to be so good at the cannons. I'm excited. Anyway, so Mary's the first one to run back and declare this truth. And we come to understand with time and with more encounters with Jesus that the thing that was happening here in the garden of the tomb was that only God, only God taking on the very worst that that original enemy could dish out, every bit of the worst, only God taking that on could lead to an, a kind of an eternal defeat of the worst that the enemy had in his arsenal. God's self, whatever we see the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit doing, we see God doing. God's self willingly took on the betrayal, the corruption, the mocking, the humiliation. He willingly kept walking forward and didn't fight and didn't lift a hand until he took on death itself. The worst lie, that the, the worst threat that the enemy has at all. He took on death itself and then the risen tomb or the empty tomb shows us that God's self defeated even death. And this is what brings Jesus as the firstborn of this new creation moment, Colossians 1.15. This moment of kingdom inbreaking is God's signpost, his daffodil signpost of a new creation moment bursting forth in glorious day. But it wasn't just a one and done moment 2,000 years ago. It was a signpost that God was now doing something new, an inauguration of a new way of participating Participating, men and women together, Garden of Eden moment, right? Mary and Jesus at the tomb moment, a new way of us participating with God, Father, Son, and Spirit as the people of God. We know that we all still exist in our own little gardens all over the place, right? Wherever they are, your work cubicle. If you have a fake succulent, just if you don't have one there, put it there to remind yourself of the imagery. In your little back window box, if you're an urban gardener, wherever it is, but give yourself a reminder and a signpost that this power of God, this power that rose Jesus from the grave, it really exists in us. Romans 6, 10 to 11. So we studied the whole first part of the book of 
of Ephesians as well. And that that power, that same power continues to be able to be made perfect in our weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Because we are sinners in need of grace, and that's exactly what Jesus' work accomplished. He made a way for those of us in all our broken, messy, messy up, things again and again, to come back time and time again, literally never running out of new creation offering of new life. This is the promise that we have. Monsieur de Wrigleyville, death does not get the last word in the story of God. It doesn't even still today. Death was defeated in this moment 2,000 years ago, but we still live in the continued promise of our own future resurrection with our risen Lord. That's truth one. A future is yet to come, and that alone is a great promise to celebrate. But we also can still celebrate today, now, in the watching, in the waiting for that resurrection glory future, that we still get to be people who choose in celebration, even when we come in here a little weary and a little gloomy, we can still choose on this day to declare celebration that we are going to hold hope and expectancy to find those kingdom in-breaking moments of daffodil signposts coming out among even the decay. In some of our lives, that looks like struggles of our own. That decay is a place where we know we struggle with a sin that's just really got shackles around us. In some cases, it's the decay we see when we look around us and we see systemic injustices that just make our heart ache. Whichever the decay, yes, it is still there, you guys, but the daffodil new life breaks through even that in the waiting until the future fullness gets to come to fruition. And we get to participate in those moments. I want to encourage us today, not just to participate and spot them, but to nurture them, tend to them, help their flourishing, find a, you know, fertilizer to help to make more of those kingdom in-breaking moments. Because you guys, this is the other glorious truth, not only future fulfillment, but we get to nurture and tend these moments as co gardeners with Christ Jesus, our risen Lord. So wherever your lament of decay is around you, come today as co-gardeners. Hold the hope and expectancy and the imagery that we celebrate today of God's intended flourishing. Because we, church, we follow a resurrected Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we just love you. And sometimes that love needs to just look like sitting in the cool of the garden, in this tomb uh, garden with you and just saying like, make this real in my life. This story, God, I need to experience it in a way that brings a feeling of abundance to me. Or maybe we feel it in the way it's like there's something around us that's just breaking our heart. And how do we enter and say like, God, I want to nurture something better in this world. How do we do that? God, I just thank you that you not only have made the way for us to get to you through Christ's path making uh, kingdom in breaking resurrection. You have given us a path to you individually, but you've also given us a path with each other as we the holy broken church come together. Together, to encourage each other, to love each other, to point out your kingdom in breaking, Lord. Help us to be bold, to proclaim, and to respond in your beautiful, precious name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. 
We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.